Hello, and welcome to Sound and Image Lab, the Dolby Institute podcast. This is a show about how artists use technology to tell their stories, and I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. As we continue to delve into the world of sound design for games, we have a special conversation to share with you today with one of the heavy hitters in this space, Rob Bridget. Most of you might be familiar with the work they did on Shadow of the Tomb Raider, and this conversation gets into some of the nitty gritty of working on that game in today's episode. But also, Rob is something of a visionary in the field and has a new book called Leading with Sound, Proactive Sound Practices in Video Game Development. And in this book, they share some of their fascinating insights and philosophy on crafting soundtracks for video games. My colleague Andy Vaughn from Dolby Game Developer Relations discusses all of this and much more for today's one-on-one -on -one with Rob. So I'm gonna hand it over right now to Andy. Thanks for joining me today. Uh, my name is Andy Vaughn. I work in Game Developer Relations for Dolby. Um, and I'm joined today by Rob Bridget, one of our longtime partners and a, a longtime game developer. Rob, how you doing? I'm doing great, Andy. It's uh, it's really nice to be able to to chat with you today and spend some time, you know, getting into some uh, subjects that maybe we maybe we wouldn't normally get into and don't usually have enough time to sort of dig into. So, yeah, it's great to uh, it's great to be here. Well, so for those who don't have the pleasure of knowing you in the past or knowing some of your background, how about you bring us up to speed on how you got here? How'd you get into games? Tell us about some of your previous titles and some of your work that that brought you to Tidos. Um, I guess I'll go back to, uh, I think, yeah, around 1998 was, uh, when I, I, I initially wanted, I was, I was initially in bands and a musician and, and even, even way before that was very into like early computer games, uh, ZX Spectrum, that kind of era. Um, and so, so always in the back of my mind was this idea that, you know, maybe that's something that I could hope, like try to get into or try to actually do uh, for a living. Um, and so around 98, after completing a film and television degree at Derby University, uh, my sort of, my main thought was, well, that now would be a great sort of moment to try and get into like film composing or music for film, um, sound for film, maybe. Uh, it was, it was, it was less of a thing that was present in my mind at that point. Um, and so I, I'd found this, uh, master's degree course, uh, down at Bournemouth University, which was, um, I think it was like composing for the screen or something very specifically about music for film. Um, and I went, I managed to get along, get an interview and get along to chat to the, the course leader, uh, guy named Stephen Deutsch, uh, Professor Stephen Deutsch. And we spent the day together just sort of looking through, looking around the studio, looking around campus, uh, meeting, I guess, previous students uh, that he'd worked with. And I, I remember I'd sent a demo reel along to him as well of some of my uh, music. Um, and he, <laughs> at the end of the sort of day, he'd, uh, he'd sort of said, well, I've listened to the demo. And um, yeah, I, feel, I, I really feel like you're going to be much happier on this brand new course that we're, that we're starting <laughs> called uh, sound design for the moving image. But um, by the end of that course, I'd made a lot of connections in the animation department and had a lot of uh, friends there uh, for whom I'd done the sound for most of their sort of reels and stuff. And it was through one of those animators that I managed to get sort of the first interview uh, and first job actually in in a game development studio. Um, so one of the animators had, had got a, a a role as an animator at uh, Climax Studios in the UK. Anyway, I, was, I managed to get a, a sort of interview there. Again, it was kind of they were kind of interested in a bit of everything. Like, oh, you also compose, you also do a bit of music on the side. That's cool. Um, dialogue is of interest to you and all that sort of stuff. So, so I sort of brought in as the only audio person really and and back then this was 2000 2001 september i remember that, that it was sort of brought in i think the official thing on the job description was like audio engineer it was the the job titles have really evolved as we've moved through the, through the years but um i think I, I think i remember asking that it be changed to like sound designer or something like that just because i'm, I'm part of the 
as part of the whole Bournemouth course, we'd been learning about Walter Murch and how he sort of fought for that term where, you know, sound is is designed. It's not just sort of applied or engineered. Uh, it's not like just a technical aspect of, of the work. So, yeah, I mean, that was like my first in-house video game development experience. Uh, and even looking back on that from, from now, that was essentially an audio director position, what we, what we call the audio director position now. And um, so that's 2001 to 2003. I think in that time I'd worked on two or three titles that were being developed as part of that Climax group. Uh, one of them was Sudeki, which was a, like a, Japanese influenced RPG for the Xbox of a sort of exclusive title for the, for the very first Xbox, uh, from Microsoft. And then I moved on to working on a Warhammer online title, which was again, one of Climax's very first sort of MMO type, uh, games in development. And so I was on that project for quite a while as well. And so I was, I was, I received this phone call at the office. <laughs> I remember the, my, my boss, the producer, uh, had a, he was like the only person with a telephone in the, in the room because it was like a shared office and his phone went, he picks it up and it's like, Oh, Rob, it's for you. Someone from, uh, Vancouver. So I'm like, okay, this is weird. <laughs> so I'm on the phone with, uh, uh, this guy from Vancouver who's like, oh, hi, I, I sort of run a, I run a, an audio department here at a video game developer in Vancouver. I was reading Develop Magazine and we're looking for an audio director to come and join us on our teams. And, and cause like, I was just sort of trying to stay out of earshot of the, of the boss, you know, in the, cause in the old days on the telephone. Um, but he's like, yeah, that sounds great. Let's, uh, let's, let's follow up by email and stuff. Just, just trying to do that. And so, yeah, it was, it just sort of happened like that, that, um, I got in contact, like got contacted by radical entertainment in, uh, Vancouver who sort of, uh, you know, I flew out there, had a kind of weekend, uh, just exploring the city and then a full sort of day of interviews with, with all their sound team over there tour of the facility and it was like super impressive like they'd really they'd really got a lot of the right things i think in terms of facilities and specific audio rooms i mean you know from that previous description of how i was sharing an office with my producer it, to me this was like oh yeah this is absolutely have to be here uh, i have to take this opportunity um so yeah i think it was in like the summer of 2003 uh was able to move over uh, to Vancouver and start there as a, as an audio director. It was, it was a very sort of interesting time uh, at Radical as well, like dealing with a lot of uh, very sort of unique problems and coming up with the tools to do that and so on. So that was, was like Radical Entertainment, open world games. I worked on, uh, my first title was a Scarface, The World Is Yours, which was a, a very sort of big, like uh, GTA style um, open world game for the PlayStation two, I think it was, and maybe the Xbox 360, something like that. Um, but again, again, that was like, it was, there was, there was a lot of pressure on that project, which was really good from like our external producers at the time we were owned by Vivendi universal games and we had an executive producer there. It was like, it would always sort of come in my office when I was, you know, working and he would be like, what, like Rob, what, what can we, can we, we have this, we have this budget. I want to spend it on something like really big and impressive. <laughs> like, uh, nice problem could, to have. yeah, it's a great problem, isn't it? And I, and I always <laughs> think about that. It's like, yeah, I got, I've got some things you can spend your money on for sure. But he was like, oh, I want, I like, could we work with maybe a Hollywood sort of sound designer and get, you know, and then we could do sort of some B roll interview and it'd be a bit of a marketing thing as well. And I was like, well, we could do that. Uh, but we could also, there's also an opportunity with the tools and tech that we're developing. Uh, because we were hooking up like, um, Mackie control, control surfaces, uh, kind of for the first time. So we could, we could physically control buses, uh, in real time as the game was running and, and kind of, I kind of do a pretty good job at a mix. So I sort of suggested that instead of just hiring, you know, a uh, famous sound designer from movies to send us some files. 
why don't we let's go let's go spend like four weeks at uh, skywalker ranch let's work with a, a mixed team there let's do a real post-production sort of sound like pass on the on the game at the very end using our new technology and stuff like that so so he was like yeah that's even better it's brilliant we'll, we'll totally do that and so we, we me and the audio programmer ended up out there at skywalker for like uh i think it was four or five weeks sort of trying to figure out the best way to to do this and it was it was kind of chaotic but also like amazing at the same time and it's kind of one of the first times that a lot of those a lot of the sound designers there had seen like i think i think a lot of the sound people at skywalker had worked on video games in a sort of removed offline capacity where they would they would do the cinematics or something like that the cut scenes and then send those files over but never had they like had the game engine come to them and like it was there running at real time and we were tweaking things um at that at that moment so that was a that was a real kind of there was a real buzz about what we were doing there yeah a lot of a lot of things came out of it like figuring out what the important things in the in the experience were like uh you know tony montana the main character his the weapon sounds were like were critical to that game and critical to the feeling and the pov of the character like feeling like this over the top personality that you had on screen so we were able to really push and emphasize aspects of the of the vision of the game that we had that we hadn't really thought about that much until until we started having those conversations with with people like randy tom and uh, uh one peralta our, our, our mixer um and then i think that takes us sort of to 2012 uh where like sadly radical was was closed as part of an acquisition uh with a with activision blizzard uh and i think at that, that point i sort of had I, I was looking for work but i i really wanted to stay in canada i didn't want to return to the uk or, or or really leave anywhere for anywhere else so the the only opportunity that popped up that was that sounded super interesting at the time was as a i think it was like audio director uh slash producer over at uh it's a very small indie studio out in out in the kind of middle of nowhere in uh, st john's newfoundland on the extreme east coast of north america um so it was like oh that's that'll be perfect it's like a coast to coast sort of thing we can go and do that it's completely new challenges it's it's different content at this time you know uh, my wife and i we had we'd had two uh young kids as well so in in the back of my mind it was like oh, it'd be really good to get away from these sort of like really these violent triple a games with a lot of like adult-ish content in them um and and go and work on sort of kids games and children's games for a while i think that that'd be really amazing for me personally to do that and to be able to bring the kids into work and you know show them what i was working on so sure so never have so to hide it that, that was really great um so yeah i went over there yeah i was basically the producer and um uh, audio director on i think four we did like four uh kindergarten uh video sort of ios mobile games um which was really cool um, sort of like math games where the math is kind of baked into the fun that you're having and you're not really thinking about solving math problems, but you are actually doing that. Um, so that was, that was really, that was totally different and really cool. And I did that for about two and a half years. And then I got a call one day from an, an, an ex-producer who I'd worked with at Radical Entertainment, uh, Max Belanger. And he was, he would, he'd made it out there to IDOS Montreal. Uh, I think, you know, similarly after Radical had closed. And, you know, he's, he's sort of telling me about the project they were working on and, you know, they were looking for someone kind of a lot of experience and the sort of cinematic uh, like angle to the to their production. And, and so I was I was sort of tempted over to uh, to Montreal, to IDOS, uh, there to work with the with the team on the new Tomb Raider game, which was, was to become Shadow of the Tomb Raider. Um, so this was very early in the like concept phase of that, of that title. Um, so yeah, that was, that was kind of how I ended up there. And I've been at, I've been at IDOS now for, I think it's six and a half years. So, I mean, that's, that, that's a very short condensed version of, 
of how I got where I am. I mean, there's a lot of hops there. Yeah, Yeah, there's a lot of hops. It's it's interesting you go from console to mobile and kids games and then back to to big AAA games again. That must have been unsettling to go from a place where you have a calibrated 7-1 studio and working with Skywalker to to building mobile games for iOS that uh, iOS iOS for iOS (laughs) that you know maybe don't have the same expectation for fidelity and immersion. Well, that was that was one of the really challenging parts of that move. Actually, was you arrive with these these huge quality expectations uh, in a not only on a platform that has you know traditionally kind of a lower bar to the the general quality for talking about just games in general on iOS. I can't, I can't remember the statistics for how many are uploaded every kind of second, but it's quite a lot. Um. But not only that, but within the field of like children's, uh, like edu- educational entertainment, like the bar even, even lower again there. So it's like going into a completely brand new field where, you know, anything you could, anything you did would improve the quality or, or improve the, the, the experience for the player. So it was, it was actually, we actually, I think I feel we actually managed to really push the bar quite high in terms of both iOS uh, sort of sound quality and we were doing we're doing the same kind of approach where we would mix the game at the end of the milestone we'd spend time I'd, I'd calibrate what i had and we would we would sort of work to established like levels as well um and so yeah we had things like because we'd moved i'd moved over at that point to third party middleware we're using wise and you know Wise is very powerful, even on even on uh, iOS on mobile. So I had DSP that I didn't even have back at Radical, and I had you know like real time compression. Uh, you could, I could sort of set up different like a headphone mode where if the if the kid plugged headphones into the device, we could detect that and sort of lower the volume overall by like six dB or whatever it was, just as a sort of like fail safe for kids not being blasted with like super loud sound. But then if they unplug the headphones, we'd, we'd raise the, raise the loudness again. So there's, there's so many sort of interesting things that came up and came out of that, that you wouldn't, you just wouldn't think were possible or you couldn't do on a console. Um, but yeah, it was a big, it was a big difference, big change. You're at, at, at IDOS Montreal now, you know, you and I met when you were working on Shadow of the Tomb Raider and especially after it launched. And, you know, one of the things that continually lands on me is that game is really, um, it's a fantastic display of the use of spatial audio. It feels like, you know, in some of the, the, the promo work that we did together um, with Dolby and, and IDOS, you talked a lot about building a world. And it feels like there is a, a, a huge world kind of in, encompassed in that game. And how did you approach that? I know the technology was new at the time. I mean, that your title was kind of coming out of R&D. That had to have been a lot to, to, to soak in and take advantage of all at one time. Yeah, um, I think the real advantage of, of me starting on that project was that we were in we were in the concept phase and we were in the very, very earliest moments. Uh, and, and again, a, a huge fortuitous thing to work on. There having already been two previous games in that series, uh, you know, Tomb Raider 2013 and uh, Rise of the Tomb Raider. And now we would we were making the final part of the of the story trilogy. So it was great because we had already had a quality benchmark. We didn't have to reinvent a lot of the, a, a lot of the sort of recipes and ingredients that were, the players would already expect in those games. And we were working on the same game engine. We had the character model. We had all the animation libraries and things like that. So we could, we could work very quickly and prototype things really quickly at a pretty high quality level. And so it really became about like, what, what, what are we going to do that's different in this one? What are we going to do that? that pushes the the bar like even further in terms of like quality and story and you know like how much more dramatic can we make this and so on and how do we wrap up the the end of that that particular trilogy um so yeah i guess i guess if you look at it all in one go it it would be quite overwhelming i think if you if you're thinking about oh what technology do we need uh what (laughs) <laughs> but all the all this sort of stuff just happened happened very gradually actually over over quite a long quite a, a long period of time so i think one of the first things i mean you know part of our studios 
like foundational principles like IDOS's foundational principles is this idea of crafting emotions which is which I found really uh, useful for audio because it gave it gave gave our audio team an opportunity to be there early in development and to lead to sort of get there first like with the emotion of it what's the tone of the of the jungle environment you know what is it feel? even with just a still image of the jungle I could I could put sound to that and use uh, some of some of our composer Brian De Oliveira's like demo music and just and just sort of sit that there and have a conversation with uh, our creative director, our game director, about like the tone and about the feel of it and about like you know what what's the what's the sort of special ingredient in this and it's like what does that what's different about our our Amazon jungle a lot of games have jungle a lot of games have amazon jungle but we have we had a very particular point of view on it so it's so it all sort of starts from there and then you 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 go into that phase of well okay we we sort of understand the tone of it like let's let's put that on screen now and so you you know you work with the team and implementation wise things things gradually start to emerge on screen and the more sound you put in and then pull out it's you you start to you start to sort of understand oh this this is how we're this is how we're going to put it on screen these are the techniques we need to use and, and to be able to work quickly uh to do that because so that our team moves very quickly to get things on screen and and even once it's there just to polish it and get it to like a, a very very sort of polished uh finished but then we go even further than that once we have everything finished and on screen and polished we'll have a big period of of like sort of extra polish um i think i think uh creative director used to call it shake and bake where we'll just have a review session that's like okay i need a i need a little creak over here and an explosion over there and i need a, a sort of dust particles here and it's like extra extra layers of of sort of interesting things that are happening during that so yeah it's the first it's the first sort of team i've worked out that's really really understood uh, building the experience in layers um and, it, and it's very narrative driven uh experiences that we build at uh, idos as well so story character all those things are really important and those are all those story and character are the things that sort of connect me back to you know the the perspective that i was learning about at bournemouth university you know where it's you know that we're telling stories we're putting a character's point of view on screen and or a point of view of the world that we've created it's not just this what a microphone hears perspective it's it's sort of filtered through the through the subconscious of the character so it's really useful in like role-playing games or third third person games where there's a character on screen yeah, it, it, we've talked a little bit about immersion of immersion and how you know we, your goal was to put the player in the uh, in, in the experience of Lara Croft in that game. And I'm thinking about a couple of scenes like you know the opening cave crawl that feels claustrophobic and totally scary. And you know the Pytiti traverse. I think I have a little bit of vertigo still when I try to play through that. Although I don't think I've ever played through it without falling off once or twice. But like those emotional moments, it seems like those are real hooks that you can tie into as a as an audio developer and add that extra polish you were talking about. Absolutely, I mean the the story is really really integral to well in, in Tomb Raider particularly because it is kind of a, a linear experience. It does have some open areas with uh, with hubs and things like that, but essentially it's a linear experience where you're really you're really going step by step through an environment that's very predictable for for us as developers so so yeah i mean a, a lot of the a lot of the shape of the experience is literally reflected in the design of the the levels themselves as well so you will have things like a, a like if you have a spectacular moment that you want to look at a, a tomb or a vista it in order to get to that spectacular moment you're gonna you're gonna Put the put the character put the player through a very claustrophobic sort of squeeze through that goes on just a little bit too long and you kind of like oh I feel, I feel really uncomfortable and just at the just at a very calculated moment you'll sort of you, you'll you'll come out of that moment into like this big space and just the player and and the character will take this big breath of like oh you know sort of this gasp of air so it's so it's, everything's sort of built with these 
with these with this sort of intensity curve in mind you know there's there should never be any moment that's like uh like flat or intense for too long or kind of quiet and still for too long there's always there's always movement um and that's something we something we work with across all the disciplines is is that that idea of intensity curves um where you know you have a very very intense moment we know where that is and we know we want to get the player there but then thinking how do we how do we actually manage that and how do we how do we bring draw the player in with quiet moments and then hit them with a, a really intense uh, experience so so i think yeah what you see in uh, in tomb raider and what you experience in shadow of the tomb raider is a really kind of a really well thought out level design uh sound design um you know uh narrative design everything's kind of kind of crafted to that point um but yeah, with with open world games that I'd worked on previously, it was it was a lot more vague. There was there was sort of things you could do and places you could go, uh, and there was a, a a story and a and some side missions, and we kind of just left the player to to have fun in those environments, really. So it wasn't it wasn't quite as guided, and it was a lot more free for the player to just go and create mayhem or whatever it was they wanted to do. So, so it's, yeah, it's, 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 it is very nice for me to be able to work on these kind of games at the moment where, you know, story and narrative and experience for the player is, is super important. Um, well, you, you mentioned uh, Brian Dolivera before, and I want to make sure we talk about him a little bit because, again, the, the music and the score and the background, just the background sound that, that it sounds like you and he worked very closely on to create for this game is is amazing and when you see some of the video clips of it it's incredible how deeply he dove into this project yeah we had, we had, brian and i had a really uh really instant connection straight off uh, i spoke to him like within the first three weeks i think of arriving at idos and knowing that that this, this the project that we were making and seeing some of the concept work and i was, I was sort of introduced to brian through a, through another sound uh, contact and yeah we met up talked talked about the project and Brian just got like incredibly excited by what we, what I was telling him. And he, he went, he went off and worked like on some, some demos, some music like, uh, overnight and sort of sent me the stuff in, like the next morning. And it was, and it was exactly what I'd had in my mind. It was like, it's very textural, like creepy, spooky, kind of dark, uh, dark sort of score-like sound, but done on traditional instruments from pre-Columbian civilizations that, you know, he, he just happened to have in his collection. I mean, he's, he has a, this vast collection of, of instruments, but particular with a particular focus on South American and pre-Columbian uh, musical instruments and sounds. And, and you know, he, he grew up in, in sort of South America and spent a lot of time there. Um, and so, yeah, this, this sort of, this demo arrived. It was perfect. I sort of was able to put it into some of the concept sketches and some of our early, uh, prototypes. And it, and it really helped solidify that, that this is the, this is the key thing that's really different about this environment and this, this new place that Lara finds herself in is, is totally different to, to the, the point of view of the character that she, that she was before. I think on the previous two titles, it was it was very it was more traditional orchestral scoring, um, uh, with the exception of the first game, which which used uh, a sort of sound sculptural instrument, which was really interesting. And so I think we sort of brought back a bit of that element with using music as um, a sort of real a real way to sort of give the give the environment this voice and this and this sort of uh, tone to it, uh, but also as like with any score, I think you're listening to the to the emotions of the of the main character, or if it's a first person game, it's the it's the the player's emotions that you're that you're sort of trying to score as a composer. And so knowing that this was this was kind of what was coming through Lara's head, you know, this was how she was feeling in these environments. It was it sort of dawned on us that oh, okay, so it makes sense that Lara is really empath empathetic to her environment is able to sort of become part of that 
culture in a way and part of that environment. And and the fact that we're hearing this kind of music as as a score, it sort of tells you how deeply she she is immersed in that world. Uh, I mean, if, I think if you were just still hearing, you know, a European style, uh, you know, um, sort of a late nineteenth century score, um, then it, it would it would be clear that Lara's head was still back at home in England, and you know, it was it was that it would be that perspective. But I think by by introducing these sort of uh, traditional elements, you could you could really sell the fact that she was immersed in that world. She was immersed in that culture, and and as a tomb raider, it's something she has to do to understand the people who made a lot of these tombs that she's now faced with, and and who made a lot of that architecture that she was that she's seeing. Um, so it really it's it's really cool to get inside, not only the, the head of your main character, but the the perspective that the character has. So, so Brian's work, like sort of effortlessly, I think, achieved that that effect whenever we whenever we dropped it in. Um, and yeah, we did. We also kept some string textures and, and stuff like that as well, just to sort of ground it in in Lara's world as well. But that that combination worked really well. Um, and and in, in the end, we ended up uh, sort of I, I describe it as just stealing some of his, Brian's stems uh to to put in 3d in the in the actual world and use them as 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 sound effects as 3d sounds almost uh, because that that ele- that really helped this element of fear that we wanted to put in a lot of the tombs which was uh this idea for us of uh the player not really being quite sure if what they were hearing was real or if it was imagined uh and so particularly a lot of the dark environments that became a really a really a fun feature to have in there. It was like, well, why, you know, you're going to hear sort of death whistle type breathing sounds, but is that part of the score or is that part of the world? Because when I move my camera, that that sound <laughs> moves as well. So you're never quite sure what's what's real and what isn't in those environments, which I, which I think works really well for that particular game as well. Yeah, I think I saw a video where he, where Brian was actually in Mexico, I believe, making some of those death whistles and how they were sprinkled through the environment. And after watching that and thinking again, it feels like you and Brian really succeeded in making the jungle its own character, this foreign environment that is adversarial from the word go. Yeah, and it, uh, you know, it's we we were very we we're very clear and upfront that this was a sort of fictional fictionalized version of the Amazon jungle. Yeah, there were certain things we wanted to feel authentic. Uh, but of course we had creative latitude to, to make it, make it sort of, uh, you know, what it needed to be for this particular game. Um, so, so yeah, it, it, it does feel like its own, its own particular character, its own particular type of jungle. Um, and again, it's all about the, the, the viewpoint of our main character, I think at that particular moment at the end of the trilogy, because there's, you know, Laura has a lot of unresolved uh, sort of story threads about her father and stuff like that, which all, all play into some nightmare sequences and stuff that she has. And yeah, it's, uh, I think all the story threads kind of tie up in a really satisfying way, actually, where, you know, you sort of end with an eclipse and uh, sacrifices and things like this. And it's, yeah. It's <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's all, it's all very sort of escapist and, dreamlike as well in a, in a weird way yeah well, I, I will admit i still enjoy playing that game no matter how many times i played the same scenes it's still surprising and really entertaining and a lot of fun yeah to play through. I, I actually looking back i mean i, I kind of regularly end up playing it for, for one reason or another whether it's a demo or something and i'm always surprised by the fact that that game shipped three years ago now talking to you today and it still hasn't really aged. It doesn't feel like it's aged as much as a lot of games do where like in the past, if I've worked on a, a game and it ships usually a year later, it looks completely out of date and the, the graphics look really bad. And it's kind of like, Oh no. Uh, yeah. We better not talk about that one anymore. <laughs> but with this, it sort of still feels like very, very well realized, very well crafted graphically. It still stands up. I think, there's a lot of like really cool lighting technology and stuff that's that's used in that. Um, and again, like that's it's it's the, it's a good story. It, the story doesn't sort of let it down. And so, I think those I think games can 
hopefully sort of have a, have a much longer shelf life now. Um, whereas I think yeah, previous games kind of become uh, like of their time quite quickly. They they show signs of age very quickly. I mean, it happens a lot with uh, with CGI, doesn't it, in in films as well. Um, it's that kind of that kind of idea, but I think in games that's that's even more accelerated because technology is just moving fast, fast, fast all the time. And what you were doing that was cutting edge benchmark stuff a year ago uh, is is kind of like well, you know we don't really do that anymore. Like a year later, so yeah, and that's on all fronts. It's not just sound or music. It's uh, you know lighting, animation, you name it. Yeah, absolutely. It feels like, you know, as technology booms in games and it's really cruising along at high speed now, it does feel like games have this risk of becoming a fire and forget effort that get this one done, get under the new technology and then one up yourself in the next one. And it feels like Tomb Raider is, has avoided that effect in a, in oh, a yeah, very yeah, cool yeah. way. Yeah, no, I, th- I think it does sort of come down to that story aspect of it, that narrative and the character being really kind of like relatable and, and human, you know, flawed it's, it's a lot of things in there that are traditionally not not what you'd ex- associate with with video games it's definitely more it, it it is sort of leaning into the cinema and the storytelling of cinema i think yeah mm-hmm. well and it feels like it evokes the right emotion too i still feel guilty every time i fall off of something or oh, every yeah. time i send laura yeah. off into an abyss yeah. and I, I don't know where that guilt comes from but it's real yeah it's just it's just like <laughs> it's, yeah, I mean, some of the deaths and, and stuff are particularly gruesome, aren't they? But I think I think that's why you feel probably guilty is because like, oh, you just move the sticker like a a millimeter too much to the left, and <laughs> it's and now it's uh, you've got to start the whole thing again. So yeah, yep, that tsunami in Mexico. I, I think I almost oh, shed yeah. a tear once or twice yeah. when I when I fumbled. Well, that's, that's another part of that franchise is this idea of spectacle and just like absolutely crazy stuff happening. Not all the time, but at, at very, at very kind of well thought out intervals. Like, yeah, you know, the, the tsunami is, is a, is a great example because, <laughs> you know, yeah, she takes the dagger from the tomb, has a sort of conversation with the, the other kind of archaeologist, archaeologist character in the game and, during during one the course of one cutscene, you go from like a, a kind of pretty chilled out conversation to uh, this wall of uh, water kind of engulfing the city, and you know it goes it goes very surreal very quickly. Like you go from you go from a scene where you're in a cafe and just sort of people are dancing and singing, and there's you know it's it's the Day of the Dead uh, uh, kind of uh, celebrations. Uh, you go from that to seeing the same sort of environment, but now underwater, and and that that sort of scene where it's it's kind of like the movie Gravity, where it's just like you don't know where up is, and the, there are sort of objects floating around in the water that you saw in the earlier scenes. You know, <laughs> it's like so it's 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 kind of uh, it's kind of amazing the spectacle that we that we that we really are able to put on screen in those in those games and uh, and it's great that the team doesn't shy away from those things i, I remember thinking that uh, and quite a few people thinking like how are we going to put this on screen like it's it's impossible we can't do it but the, but we found a way you know we feel like the more extreme ideas we come up with it's almost like the, the team really relishes the challenge of being able to realize that and put it on screen it's sort of like yeah we have to we have to do that we have to put it on on the yeah. Excellent. Well, okay. So a quick transition here. We're talking about, you know, surreal experiences. We're talking about, you know, creating an environment that, that, that's fully immersive. And so I, you know, we talked a little bit about what you're doing at McGill and I, can you tell us a little bit about the, the work you're doing there? It's, it's kind of a departure kind of from video games, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. So I think it was about a year and a half ago. Uh, I think it was actually at one of the the Dolby Atmos demos that I was doing for uh, for AES. I think it was in I don't remember the year. Two, it must have been two thousand eighteen, October, whenever whenever that was. Um, and after after I'd done the demo, so we did an Atmos demo uh, of the game. I showed some of the some of the scenes we talked about. And then after that, I remember having a conversation with a a student from McGill University super interested in the spatial elements that we were talking about 
And then through that conversation, I got talking to the, the professor there at McGill. And yeah, we, we realized we were just like two blocks away from each other, like Eidos Montreal and McGill. They're both downtown Montreal. Um, you know, I, I invited them over to our studio again for like a, a sort of similar demo to that AES demo just for the students. Uh, and then they invited me over to see their facilities. Uh, it's really, it's really amazing because you, this is kind of normal looking concrete building. You kind of think nothing of it. You go inside, elevator down two, three floors, and then you step out into this enormous, uh, like mind blowing studio. studio yeah. It's huge. Yeah. Have you have you been in there? Have you seen yeah. it? Well, um, well, we had the the. the oh yeah, choice. you you were there for yeah. the. We did a demo there together yeah. as well for uh, for I think it was a wise wise world tour. But man, that studio is yeah. sh- shockingly cool. Well, it, there's an enormous yeah, it's an enormous room. I can't remember how many cubic feet it is. It's just it's like a, I think it's yeah, it's like it's a one of the biggest scoring stages in probably North America. I think. And it's, and it's all floating. The whole, the whole room is floating. So like engineering wise, it's just a sort of miracle. And, and the whole thing's in, the, in downtown Montreal. You just wouldn't know it was there. So it was, <laughs> it was kind of amazing to, to see that. And so, so, so yeah, we, 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 we always kind of, we're like, oh yeah, it'd be great to go and record something there. Or it's cool to have that place in mind. Now we know it's so close. Um, and then, um, uh, like a, a sort of funding opportunity came up where we could apply for, uh, like a, basically some funding to do a research project. And so the professor and I worked on a sort of pitch for that and, um, we were, we were successful. We got the green light for it. And so essentially the project is to, um, uh, record, record spatial music or some, some, different forms of spatialized music and to uh have that as a as a as a demo inside a sort of game engine environment so we came up with like a very quick sort of top-down map of a of a sort of a path through the woods uh very foggy if you can imagine like lots of volumetric fog you're walking through the through the woods and then you come into this open space uh with sort of uh i think they originally had sort of standing stones and they were supposed to be music emanating from the stones but that's now morphed into this even weirder and more cool idea of like these these sort of reflective black orbs just floating around in this space for no reason at all they're just sort of floating there and each one of those is like a a musical uh, positional voice um and then you go you go through that section across a, a kind of a ledge which uh, which is like a sort of refresher moment where you you hear a bit of ocean sound and there's a bit of sort of danger there and then you walk into a smaller clearing and it's like the same sort of idea of different sounds now different instruments sort of moving around it's very it's very abstract it's very um it's very sort of very very different kind of project um it's uh it's something we wouldn't normally get time to work on or do which is is really valuable to us um, as research, uh, just because you know it's a kind of beacon project for our studio because it's it enables us to pause our normal ways of working and just and do something just very 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 different and driven by the music itself. So the yeah, the general idea is it's this abstract environment and you you walk through it and music kind of leads you through it uh, and each environment kind of has a different um, musical tone and musical feel to it. And all this is, is spatialized as well. So it's, so it's done using, um, sort of ambisonic beds of music. Um, also some 3d, you know, some positional elements as well, some objects. Um, and, uh, and another great thing about that is that, uh, Brian Delavera is also working with us on that, on the music side as the composer for that. So you know, we're, we're continuing that collaboration with like spatial music ideas, which is, you know, from the Tomb Raider things, we, we'd really got excited by some of the stuff we were doing. Always had that idea that we could push it further. And so with this, we're able to, to do that and, and just try and experiment with, with that as well. And already it's kind of, it's, it's certainly influencing the way that we think about music in games, particularly um and 
you know, traditionally we're all, usually we, 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 st we keep our score to the left, right, or to the, to the quads. And we, and we keep it in a sort of static position, um, for the most part. Um, but I think there are opportunities, particularly like we'd mentioned those sort of spectacle moments in games where, oh, you know, suddenly you're underwater or you're in a, you're in a nightmare sequence or something like that. There are, there are these spectacle moments and opportunities where I think you can suspend the normal rules of where you put music in the, in the mix and you can, you can make, you can make the, you know, sort of instruments fly around and, and do very strange things that you wouldn't totally wouldn't expect or you wouldn't normally do for the, for your normal score for 90% of the game. You wouldn't have things flying around just because of the distraction element of that. But if, if there's a very surreal moment, then it's like, of course you want to do that. You want to magnify all those, the sort of, the sort of like weird things happening, uh, stuff not obeying rules that it normally obeys. Uh, I think that, I think that's, I think that's great. So yeah, it's, it's really helping us to figure out like, uh, uh, like how much we can get away with in the normal score storytelling and how much crazy stuff we can do when it's spectacle um so yeah so it's like a really really great project actually it's turned out to be um yeah it's just we, we're always challenged with having time to work on it as well because we're, we're working on other games at the same time but yeah it's always it's always something that's nice to come to and just sort of play with and, and work with so it's really cool yeah it sounds like it was a good opportunity to, to kind of loop back to avant-garde rob chopping up music and doing things that maybe shouldn't have been <laughs> yeah. done and bring this back oh, in another yeah. form Hey, you're right. You're right. That's what's happening. That's what I'm doing. I'm still trying. I'm still trying to get my demo uh, into a game. <laughs> well, all right. So, can we see ah, this demo, or or is that still um, in, uh, in creation? Yeah, well, that's a good question. Um, yeah, our our sort of goal is to finish uh, finish the sort of the the build uh, at the end of this year. So. Yeah, end of 2021. Um, that will probably have some like debugging and QA to do, uh, as well as maybe some cross-platform stuff to look at in the new year. But we're hoping to sort of have it available for people to download as an as an executable on the PC, just the the, the build itself, and also like we want to share the Wise project as well, and have people be able to open that and connect it to the to the build as it's running. Uh, and then we're at, at some point further down the road, we'll look at the different versions because we, we still need, to, we still really want to get that running on the PlayStation 5 because we want to listen to, uh, you know, how spatial audio works on the, on the headphones on that uh, platform uh, and the, the Xbox Series X as well. So yeah, uh, I mean, it's, it's a sort of no, and it's a, there's no profit to be made on it. We're, we're putting it out kind of free. So it's, uh, yeah, I think it's something, it's like, it's just like a little weird demo. Uh, but yeah, I think it'll be available somewhere on some platform at some point, uh, in the, in the early. <laughs> just stay tuned, right? Of, uh, uh, it sounds like it's a really unlimited yeah. creative experience and, you know, a chance just to kind of let the, uh, the, the ideas fly, which must be freeing for you at, at some point, you know, as wide open as a game like Tomb Raider is being able to say, throw away the rules and go do something just for the fun of it has to be a, a nice yeah. change. Yeah. Well, I just think that just that simple notion of, letting the music be the main thing in the in the demo like even from a technological standpoint uh there's no there's no cap for us in terms of audio memory on this project you know because like the visuals are pretty scaled back it's like a black and white misty environment all the emphasis is is therefore on the on the music and on the sound so like we got our all the sample rates are as cranked as we can possibly get them and uh you know the mem the audio memory is like as 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 big as we can make it. I mean, those, those are the sort of constraints that we never normally get to flout, you know? Yeah, it's like the tool, the toy uh, box just so, got dumped out at your feet, right? Use whatever you use, whatever you want. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, so it's like, okay, well, you know, let's, let's see if we can do this. That's because I'm not even sure yet. Like if, if we can run sort of uncompressed PCM, uh, ambisonic, you know, it's like finding all this stuff out as well. It's like, are we actually going to hit some, some limits at some point? Um, cause normally we are just working in this very, very limited, uh, memory pool a lot of the time. 
Um, and you know, that's, that's obviously become less and less of an issue these days, but you know, 15, 20 years ago, it was, it was, it was, you know, make or break sort of decision about the game shipping or not is if you could fit the audio in, in memory. And if, if a certain dialogue line didn't play, you know, it might ruin the, the story for someone, but Hey, at least we shipped it. You know, at least we got it on the, on the disc and it, it might play. It might not. We don't know. <laughs> so it's, it's like, I think, I think our priorities uh, have moved quite significantly to favor the audience and favor entertainment. Uh, whereas I think in the, in the, in the very old days, I think it was largely a very software programmatic environment where the sort of the definition of success was just the game running and, and not having bugs uh, rather than the audience, like enjoying the story and stuff like that. So I, I think the needles really, the pendulum was really moved into games being like very, very popular and serious entertainment uh, media. Um, certainly up there with, with cinema and, and film. Most definitely. Well, you've taken me right to the front door of another topic I want to address with you. You wrote a book with, you know, in the middle of all this other work, you wrote a book called Leading with Sound. And I've been reading through it. I will admit I haven't gotten all the way through it yet, but there are some great um, points made there. I especially like your uh, your your commentary on it shouldn't be about what sounds I can make. Um, and maybe think more about the player. Can, and I know that's kind of a, um, a long-term learning, but can you tell me more about that and more about your book? Yeah, sure. Um, so, so this book, uh, Leading with Sound, um, I wrote it, uh, I think it was during the, the yeah, uh, 2020, the pandemic. I remember that. That was, that was the thing. Yeah, no, well, I, I sort of, I'd spoken to the publisher, uh, Routledge, uh, and we I'd sort of planned, planned out that I was going to write this book. It was, it was, it's great working with a publisher because you have to go through this very, very sort of a strict process of like submitting chapter headings and descriptions and like, what's, what's the book going to be about? It's not like you can just sort of write it with no idea, uh, which is, which is kind of how I've written previous things, but, but this had to be very structured and, and follow. So the good thing about that is you have this plan that you have to follow. So I always knew like, okay, around sort of March, April, I'm going to, I'm just going to start typing this thing out. And I already had the, the, the structure of it. Uh, but then, yeah, I guess the pandemic hit and it was like, cause I, I planned to use my commutes to work to, to that, that time was going to be when I wrote the book. So now I'd sort of, it kind of worked out okay because I still had that time, but I was now at home. It was warmer. Um, yeah. 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 It was, it was definitely warmer. <laughs> uh, and, and yeah, it was, it was so, so yeah, it took, I think it, I was, it was like in September that I'd finished it. And essentially the, the, yeah, the, the main sort of topic of the book, I guess, yeah, well, there's, there's two sort of things. It's like the whole, I've, I've tried to break down all of, the audio uh, work that we do in games into sort of four food groups. I know in film, we, we often talk about th three food groups of like music, sound and dialogue. But I felt that in video games, especially because it was so omnipresent, this topic of mix, the mix uh, is, was elevated to a fourth food group, kind of the kind of the most important food group. Uh, in a way, so it was. Uh, so there was the kind of overall structure of the book where I I talk about the, the the topic of leading with sound through each one of those sort of subject areas and like what are the opportunities uh, for sound designers or composers or, or dialogue designers, like what are the opportunities that they may be missing early in you know pre-production or production um, and trying to trying to de-emphasize this idea of post-production. I know it's something that I've I've spent a lot of my time trying to create and defend in video, and I, I still maintain that we 100% have to have post-production time. We have to be kind of the last part of the of the the baton race, if you will. We still need that. I'm not I'm not arguing for that to go away. That's still critical. Those are, but it's like it feels like that's those are the gates of Valhalla for us in in audio. It's like once we arrive at post-production. We, sh we should already have all this other stuff figured out and kind of ready to just 
spend time tweaking and making some very final kind of minor or well they sometimes you can make quite major adjustments in post-production but the point being not to do all the work of, of game audio <laughs> in the last like four weeks that you have because um, like without that phase without that final phase you can you can just find yourself like fixing bugs or trying to trying to design a weapon sound that isn't quite right uh in the in the last moments of a project um and of course you can still do that but it's like you you don't need to you don't need that panic you don't need that um like just just like working crunching as as hard as you can uh, at that last period i've always felt from that initial experience at skywalker that finishing a project should be a, a sort of peaceful and relaxed process where you get to have conversations about the things that that are on screen and talk about why a certain thing is important and why a certain other thing isn't important at this particular moment in the game or this or this particular feature is is giving you feedback about the position of a particular object and is it is it important that that sound is diffuse or pinpoint i mean these these are the sort of conversations that i think are great to have with other creative people on the project and at that moment, in that post-production moment, you, that, that's really the, the time to get to do that. Um, and you, you're, you're often off-site, you're away from the normal space where you have developed the game and you're away from that sort of chaos that comes with uh, closing a game often in, in a studio. It can, be, it can be quite a stressful place just to be there. So it's great to just get out of that space, go somewhere else and like really look at what and listen to what you've put on screen and then make make some final choices about that but in order to get there there's there's like 90 percent of the work that you're going to do uh should already have happened actually so yeah the book the book really tries to talk about what what should you be doing in the concept phase uh and in pre-production you know in, in full production like what are those what does the audio work look like in those in those because i don't think it's something that's very often talked about or even or even well documented at all or kind of understood like even that idea that you know i talk in the book about this these l numbers like l0 l1 l2 l3 l4 these are effectively just ways of saying there's a particular thing a particular quality level that we're looking at at this particular moment in production so pre early pre-production, you might just be working on L1, which is just to just to get some sound in the game, triggering to get some feedback to the player that yes, I, I pressed the button and the thing blew up. It's it's good. I, I feel good doing that. <laughs> That's the, the 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 feature works, but that moment isn't the time to start polishing the sound and making it like do all the things that it needs to do with emotion and, and, and sort of identity and stuff. It just needs to provide feedback at that early, early, early sketch phase. And so we talk about like, Oh, this, this, this is defined as L1. So my team knows that the expectation is just for L1 work, work with the other disciplines on what they're working on. A lot of the animators and so on also working at L1 level as well. So it's something that's usually established across the whole whole team, these L numbers. And then L2 has a different kind of meaning where we're looking at, okay, now, we, now we've got the triggers in and we've got the feedback and we know, we know the features are good. We can start to put some of the identity that we figured out in our, you know, in our uh, concept phase. Uh, we can start to bring some of that design into the sound design of the of the sounds that we've got on screen now so we can spend a lot more time iterating and trying to make it feel like part of the world and part of that that uh that franchise or whatever it is we're working on and then just to skip to l3 it's more about emotion at that level so it's like we're, we're polishing and iterating still but now we're we're deciding like like how how important and how emotional is this particular explosion compared to this one earlier? And there's there's all sorts of all sorts of stuff comes out of thinking about emotion and an emotional layer, an emotional pass on the sound as well. So there are, there are features in a game where you might, you know, you might have one particular explosion that is super important and super emotional for various story reasons. 
Uh, but you, you don't just want to use the same systemic explosion that you use everywhere else in the game. You want a very special one for that. So you'll, you'll put in a different trigger for that thing and, you know, the rest will be the sort of systemic one. So it's just, it's just an emotional layer where an emotion, a, a point at which you're able to think about those things specifically, um, and just polish that. And, and so, so yeah, this idea of working in layers. Uh, continually and, and everyone sort of knowing because I think the thing that I found really challenging early on as a sound designer in games was that you, you, you see something on screen, it's early days and you, your job is to put sound in the game. Uh, you kind of feel under pressure all the time. So it's, so it's natural, I think, to want to put something really polished in. And it really works perfectly and has a lot of, has a lot of functionality, variation, identity, emotion, just on the first thing that you do. Um, and, it, and I think there's, there's a sense that, you know, I'm, be, I'm sort of being, being judged all the time on what sounds are currently in the game, you know. So without that, like, L scale, I think there's the expectation from different areas of the, of the production that, Oh, you know, this, this sounds, this doesn't quite sound, uh, like, like a, like a finished game kind of thing. And of, and of course it isn't. It's just like your first sound that you've put in. And so, uh, yeah, I think just systemize, systematizing that process of just very quick passes, just functionality. We'll, we'll look at the identity and the emotion later. Uh, it'll, it'll, it'll happen. Trust me, but we need a good foundation to, to build on, you know. So yeah, I think. Just exploring that idea a little bit in the book as well, and sort of giving some examples of of things uh, where you know you can just throw some, throw literally a sine wave in the game, just to just to make sure that the trigger's working, and and that's kind of good. That's 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 served its purpose, knowing full well later on that we'll replace it with, with something better. Um, so it's yeah, it's a lot of it's a lot about communication, a lot about collaboration. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that seems to be the callback and kind of the, the the thread through a lot of the stuff we've talked about today. That collaboration is really the hugest part of of building these experiences, and that if at L1 you're building final sound effects, you may not be building the sound effect for the decisions that you decide need to be made at the end of that production too. Yeah, yeah, and of course. Uh, games change quite a bit as well from where you started to where you, where you end can be, can be quite a different place. So you've always got to be moving with, uh, with the, whatever's changed at the high level. You've always got to follow that or, you know, be included in it because some, some fundamental stuff can come in at, at a particular moment where, I don't know. It could be a particular feature or it could, uh, you could, you could go from, I mean, you could, you could suddenly, <laughs> one of the games that I worked on, uh, I remember it was kind of a, it was a, it was a third person shooter, but then suddenly for, for I don't know what reason we had a, an entire level, which, which was now like driving a car and shooting out of the car, like for the entire level and then later on they added a helicopter with the same sort of thing so it was completely different mechanics you know the perspective was different now we were in first person on the gun sort of thing and it was like having to react to that very quickly and very uh like professionally is, is a real challenge sometimes um but yeah it's like if you could if you can at least get some sort of 100 foot view of what's coming down the down the line at you just seeing ahead a little bit, I think that's really, it really helps you to be prepared and to plan for things and, and, and just move faster without, without const constantly thinking this is going to happen any, any minute, you know, are they going to add, uh, some other kind of vehicle next week? <laughs> we have changed perspective it, again. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it's, it's, it's very, uh, yeah, it keeps you on your toes for sure. So yeah, the book is the book is trying to explore that uh, early part of production as much as possible, and and to try and uh, show ways in which you know successfully getting there first with sound, with sort of sketch work and previs work and concept work uh, can really help influence the team, influence different departments as well. Like 
you know, animation or whatever it is, lighting, uh, can all be sort of influenced by some of the early music sketches that you share with the team uh, and things like that. So, yeah, it's uh, it was an important book to write and to get out, I think. It's good. Uh, and, and it's good because it means I can I can read it as well. <laughs> I don't have to have all that information <laughs> in my head anymore. I can just refer to it, right? Well, I'll agree. It's been it's been an enjoyable read, and I've learned an awful lot while uh, while I'm paging through it. So you know that that title again, it's leading good. with sound. So, yeah, there's an extra special, exciting bit at the end as well, Andy. So yeah, you need to get to that. All right. <laughs> well, then I think that's the, that we never have enough time at all, but I think that's a good time to kind of tie things off so I can go back and continue reading the book. But Rob. Yeah, I think you should. Yes. yes. This has been an amazing conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. I am really looking forward to a seeing the McGill project and B whatever you build next. Great. Thanks. Uh, thanks Andy. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's, it is, it is a great opportunity. I really, really enjoy both sort of watching and listening to these, uh, these Dolby Institute podcasts uh, because they, they do allow us to sort of expand on a lot of these, these topics that are normally, you know, even in something like a GDC presentation, you've maybe got half an hour and you can, you can only talk about the tiny thing, but yeah, I, I like, I like the, I like the format and the freedom to delve a little deeper here. It's, it's, uh, it's really nice. Watch out. We'll be coming back to you for a series next. Oh, great. I like the sound of it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Rob. All right. Cheers. Thank you, Andy. And thank you again to all the folks at Eidos Montreal for helping put that conversation together. We have another gaming specific episode coming up on the podcast feed in addition to our usual programming covering film and television. So if you haven't already, I hope that you subscribe to us, please. The Dolby Institute podcast. You can find links to our dedicated podcast feed in our show notes, or you can just search for Dolby wherever you get your podcasts. Until then, thanks for joining us. This is Sound and Image Lab, the Dolby Institute podcast. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry, with production support by Taylor Hines, and our production coordinator is Sonny Chen. Thank you for listening to us. <laughs>